Charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an astro-scale and market-scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Space to Grow podcast, a webcast. We keep saying podcast, but I Web, guess we should let's call, it a webcast. Call, call it what it is. You can listen to it yep. on you know audio only, but we are here on the web. Uh, we're focused on the intersection of economics, technology, and sustainability in space. As we grow the space economy, we've got to develop these sustained partnerships to make sure we are successful. As always, I am here with Charity Whedon. Hey, Charity, what's up? Hey, hey, Chris. Doing good? I am. Yeah. yeah. Cool, cool. Well, <laughs> we just we just had an awesome conversation. And before mm-hmm. I get into uh, talking about who our guests is, one connection to this is is you have another role in the space. We have many roles in the space community. You're like you're like wearing multiple hats. And one of them in the space community is as chair of the FAA, the US uh, Federal Aviation Administration's Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee. So um you know we're gonna talk about this in a bit when we introduce our guests, but what are, you, what are you doing on that group and, and how do you see the space launch industry growing internationally in the next few years? Well, this federal advisory group provides insights and advice to the FAA, ultimately to the Secretary of Transportation on how the commercial space transportation industry can grow safely and effectively. So we've got a lot of tasks on hand and launch is our main thing. So yes, I'm moonlighting a little bit from AstroScale, Chris. But uh, it's good. <laughs> launch and a, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Launch and accompanying ground infrastructure like spaceports are critical infrastructure. And when you think about it, a lot is riding on the availability, affordability, orbital insertion, and safety of launch services. And we're seeing more choice in small launch market, and that can further fuel the whole industry. So, like all our space activities, however. This needs to be done in a sustainable manner and integrate well into the airspace as well. A lot is riding on this industry. It fuels yeah. our, as, as you're just all, all puns intended, I assume. It ignites my interest in this topic, Chris. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, today's guest, I think, is ignited by the same type of interest. And as we learned, uh, he's got a really interesting vision for the space sector. He's got a fascinating background. Uh, and the great path toward where he sees the industry going. Uh, we have today Peter Beck as uh, as a guest. Uh, and I don't know, the conversation jumped to a lot of different areas, Charity, and, and uh, really showed what kind of vision he has, I think. Uh, he is now the CEO of Rocket Lab. He led the development of the Electron rocket. He founded the company in 2006 uh, as himself, one person, um, and uh, as he as he tells us in his conversation, you know that steadily grew and then has since been since been doubling. Uh, they're an end to end space company offering launch services, spacecraft, satellite components, and even into on orbit management. Um, as of December 2021, they had launched over 22 missions, deployed 100 satellites, and a few years, uh, a few months prior to that, in August of last year, they went public on the NASDAQ as a SPAC. Um, you know what I like the most about Rocket Lab? What's that? 
is the name of their launches. They're so oh, clever. They're so cool. I actually right? did they make that. it like a, a little like sentence about the launch is really neat. I saw him I saw Peter on a um another uh interview recently and and the one was uh they go up so fast. <laughs> so it's so great. Talking about puns, yeah. Yeah, well that's what they're all they're all about on this. So it's um it is. It's a creative company. It's uh, you know, they've they've grown rapidly and and they're one of the, the leaders now in terms of um uh, this launch vehicle market. So uh, you know, Peter has an interesting background too. Charity started as a toolmaker, uh, industrial research on smart materials, and and that I think uh, impacts a lot of his philosophy on rocket development and design. Uh, but he's not just an engineer. He was you know, awarded Entrepreneur of the Year um, in 2018. Uh, got a bunch of different medals from different groups in New Zealand and globally. So uh, fascinating guy. And uh, we had a really cool conversation. So hope you all enjoy it. Peter, welcome. Thank you. Great to have you on, on Space to Grow. And, uh, you know, we're a, we're a podcast that's focused on sustainability. And I know that's something that's uh, near and dear to your heart and to New Zealand mm. in general. So uh, it, it, it's great, really great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. No, it's good, good, to, good to be able to chat about that, that kind of topic. Often it's it's you know technology and and, um, and capital markets and all that kind of thing. So it's it's fun to be able to talk about something that's uh, that's a little bit off the beaten track, which is great. And and we'd like to try to get to a point where we see how those merge. I mean, because the whole technology, capital markets, sustainability, you know, we we see more and more overlap. But um, but but it's still it's still at the nascent stage, hmm. especially in space. Yep, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it is. And um. And but things are changing so rapidly. You know, I, I actually visited Rocket Lab uh, 2018, and uh, in California, and met some of your team. You weren't there, but I got a great tour, and they showed me the factory floor. And all I could think at the time was, man, ambitions are big for these guys because you had this huge, huge uh, manufacturing floor, and there was one rocket. <laughs> you yep. had one yep. electron there, uh, and I think Charity, you went there a couple years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, we got a tour as well. And I assume it was looking a little more filled out then. Yeah, I think there was three by then. How, I can't recall. How many now? <laughs> that, that was probably the Huntington Beach facility. Yes. Was yes. Back then. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, Long, the Long Beach facility now is much bigger than that facility, and it's it's overflowing. And um, then, just, you know, Colorado and a whole bunch of other places around. So, so you guys just moved to Colorado also? Well, we we acquired uh, ASI, which um, has a Colorado present. Then we so we've we've just bought a you know a nice big building across the road from where they were, and to expand into there as well. Is it in Denver? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's in um, yeah in, in Colorado there. Well, so you're you're neighbors of our Astroscale US office, which is based in Denver. Probably, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So we're we're there in downtown now, um, and opened up a couple of years ago there. Denver's a pretty great place uh, to be. How many people now total in the company? 1,100-ish. And how, how has it grown? What's been the growth rate? I mean, five years ago, were you just at a couple hundred? And... Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I started the company in New Zealand in 2006, and it was just me. And then, you know, by 2009, we had like three people. And then um, 2013 was when I went to the States. Well, end of 2013, beginning of 2014 was when I went to the States to into Silicon Valley to raise, you know, private capital um out of out of the vcs and that was 
although we you know we're, we're a company prior to then that's kind of really when we were we really started to you know move forward as a company prior to that we were a little technology house doing doing kind of r&d projects and um, every year since then we've we've doubled in size and um, last year was was no uh, you know no, nothing different last year we doubled in size through slightly different means normally you know, it's through hiring, but you know, we we um, we made quite a few acquisitions last year, so that 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 kind of doubled us that way. But every year, I go, well, that was going to be the biggest year. How can we possibly double in size? And then it's like you get to the end of the year, and I go, oh, well, that happened. <laughs> we managed. Yeah. So so Rocket Lab is acquiring a, a few companies. I see there's one in Sinclair in Canada. Can you tell us about all the opportunities and challenges of operating in all these different nations? Yeah, I mean, we, we've been global from day one because we had obviously had operations in New Zealand with the launch site and some manufacturing down here. We also had manufacturing up in Long Beach and, and headquarters in Long Beach. So um, so we, we've always been global from day one and, and used to operating across, you know, across various hemispheres. And, uh, you know, all of the companies that we've acquired in, in recent times are companies that we've had long, long relationships with. Like, you know, Doug and his team we'd known for many, many years and used his products and our customers have used his products. And, and same with the ASI guys. And then, you know, um, Walt and, and Mike from PSC with the separation systems. You know, we've flown so many of, of PSC separation systems. It's not funny. And then, you know, the Solero guys as well, of course, you know, the Solero solar panels all, all around Rocket Lab's customers and Rocket Lab itself. So all of these guys we've had really long relationships with. And, you know, what we're really looking for here is, is the best in class and, um, you know, the very best teams and the very, you know, very best products. And if you look across all of those companies, it's all 100% success rate in orbit, um, 100, and, and just like very, very long and deep heritage and, and really core engineering at their at their heart of their culture. Yeah, it's, in, it's, it's incredible to watch how you've done that because that, that's really one of the challenges, I think, generally, especially for growing companies, is, is how to operate across borders uh, and figuring out various export rules and regulatory policies and, and things like that. Because you guys are a, you're a U.S. headquartered company officially. Correct. Yep. No, we're a U.S. company, U.S. headquarters. Um, the New Zealand um, operations are a subsidiary of the, of the U.S. entity, and it's been like that since 2013. Um, and um, same with the Canadian operations. So, yeah, I mean... Like I say, the one thing about you know growing up in, in New Zealand as a company is you have to be global from day one. So all of all of those tyranny of distances have to get resolved before you can even open the door. Yeah. So let's let's go back to that. Actually, we we kind of jumped right into talking about about Rocket Lab, but but going back to to you know how how it started for you and you know we've obviously read and you've done you've done a lot of interviews and seen how you've talked about wanting to be builder of rockets from a young age and were told that it was mm. crazy but yeah. still pursued it <laughs> so to, yeah. To yeah, tell yeah, us yeah. a little bit about that yeah i mean look uh i think sometimes no is just not the right answer um and you know for me personally i always knew exactly what i wanted to do um to, to a fault almost and um and you know uh just just pursued it through through probably pretty non-traditional paths but at the end of the day, um, you know, I always, I always say to an entrepreneur, if you've, if you've got a burning passion, and uh, you really want to do something, then, then really, there's nothing, there's nothing in this world that can stop you. So, for me personally, uh, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and it, you know, that it changes and morphs quite a bit. I mean, I think it, very early on, I wanted to go and work for like NASA or, you know, one of the big, um, one of the big space primes, and, and as kind of 
you know, time morphed and I understood more about, you know, those organizations and where I could make an impact, um, it was obvious that I needed to kind of do my own thing. By doing your own thing, each individual in the space business has a varied career path. Uh, what advice do you have to young folks that want to follow an exact career path or, you know, want to explore different career paths in the arts, but still be related to space? What kind of advice do you have for young folks coming into the profession? Well, I think I think find find your niche, find what you're really, really passionate about, because if you're really, really passionate about something, the, the, the no's that just become wrong answers. Um, if you're not that passionate, then a no is a barrier. If you're really passionate, then no is not really a barrier. It's just your, you know, it's, it's just yes on a different day. So I, I think really finding your, your, your passion and what, what you're going to fight for and what you're going to push for and devote your life for is once you find that, then, um, then, then everything else is easy. You, you will find a way. There's, there's no argument. No is a great motivator, isn't it? Sure is. Yeah, yeah, sure is. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing is when physics says no, then you've got to listen. That's 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 about the, the only disclaimer to that. Yeah, I guess. Physics always getting in the way. It's so frustrating. Yeah. Isn't it? But so that but but the no in, in space, it's um such a challenging business model. And it's something that we're we're focused on, of course, all the time. We're you know looking at satellite servicing and and we talk about the uh, we're trying to focus on being an environmental company in space and do servicing in space. And this is the next step in terms of an ecosystem and an economy. The, the launch services economy and, and what you were trying to dive into there from the, the economics of, of space launch, I, I mean, it's it's so challenging. I mean, the CapEx is huge. Uh, the, the failure rate is high. Um, you know, it... it how did you even starting as one person and trying to build this company up slowly at first, if, if you had only a few in the first few years, how are you able to get over that, um, that economic barrier of trying to raise money and then having to put all that money into it? I mean, just how do you get past that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think um, the, the way I liken, you know, I often said this, the way, the way I liken to building a rocket company is like running through a maze at night and at every dead end, there's a guy with a shotgun because if you run around the corner too fast and you're too kind of careless, you are going to die. And, you know, with, with, with building a, a launch company in particular or designing a launch vehicle, one wrong technology decision and you go, you know, there's just so much capital, as you said, and so much time that gets wrapped up into that wrong decision that, um, that, it, that, that it can really exterminate you. So being being really really you know careful with your decisions and and your development program and innovating in the areas that you know add real real value, not just things that kind of look like discriminators on a PowerPoint to an investors, but what are the things that actually create real meaningful value with respect to innovation, and you know the the R part and the D is really expensive, so you want to really really choose what bits of R you do and which bits of D you do because um, you know. I think I think I'm blessed with kind of having half an engineer's brain and and half kind of you know a commercial brain, and they're in constant conflict with each other because the engineer wants to just you know innovate and and kind of noodle and doodle and forever, and then the commercial side of the brain wants to you know no this is this is good enough this is complete we need to move on, and it's it's striking that balance I think to, you know to build a successful company is is enormously hard. And when I started Rocket Lab, you know, I was the only guy running around Silicon Valley trying to raise like $5 million for an A round to build a rocket. Like there weren't other people really running around the valley at that point. 
And, you know, we, we went to orbit on a ridiculously small amount of money with a ridiculously small amount of team. I mean, we started the Electron program in 2014. By 2017, we had our first vehicle on the pad and launched. By 2018, um, you know, we were, we were the fourth most frequently launched. No, that was 2019. 2018, we launched three times. 2019, we were the fourth most frequently launched rocket uh, in, in the world. And, you know, that, that, that degree of pace and, um, and, and, and we did it just so enormously cheaply with so, such, a small, um, such a small team. And for me, it's kind of funny now because I look, look back and, and, you know, other startup rocket companies are raising $100 million rounds or $200 million rounds. I'm like, really? You know, that's, that's goodness me. We built a whole launch site and built, launched, you know, developed a rocket and launched it for probably, you know, less than $100 million. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a totally different time. The amount of capital that's flowed into, into launch in particular is just mind boggling. Um, but at the end of the day, um, like any business, it's, it's, you know, what, what value are you creating? And access to space is of enormous value to, you know, to, to the industry because, you know, without access to space, then everything else is pretty much moot. So, um, yeah, so I think, I think that's an important thing to remember is where the value is created. So Rocket Lab isn't just a launch company. You also provide an end-to-end -end business model, which entails services, but spacecraft, satellite components. I dare I even say honorable servicing with Photon uh, delivering last mile services. Can you elaborate more about building this ecosystem? Are you looking to become vertically integrated? What's the future look like? Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, Pick a number, which, whichever report you want to read, like it's going to be a $2 trillion industry or $1.4 trillion, whatever report you want to read. But none of that can occur unless there's scale within the space industry. And at the moment, there's not really scale within the space industry. If you go to most component suppliers, if you're building a constellation and say, I want 2,000 you know, solar panels, people's head will just explode um, because that's just not a number that's you know, banded around in the space industry. So the way I kind of look at this is that in order, in order for this industry to grow, we need to make sure that there is scale there um, to be able to fit for constellations and everybody to be able to do the things they want to do in orbit. And you can put the head, your head in the sand and say, well, someone else will take care of that. Or you can look at the tools and the things that you've got and the things that you're good at and go, well, actually, we're really good at that. Um, this is an area that we can help. So from a Rocket Labs perspective, um, if you look at all the acquisitions we've made and all the things we've done, um, it's really about providing that sense of scale to the industry so that, um, so that the industry can grow. If the industry grows, that's great. Um, we'll build more spacecraft, we'll, we'll sell more components, and of course, we'll provide more launch. Um, and and that, that's, kind of, that's kind of where, we, where we, we like to play. So having that vertically integrated you know, from end to end is just enormously powerful. I mean, uh, if you look at a, a, you know, one of our customers that we're, we've flown recently, we provided the launch to them. They're separated off our separation system. They're using our solar panels, platforms running our software. Uh, they're using our star tracker. They're using our reaction wheel. And, you know, you, you can see that you can really have a meaningful impact to the space ecosystem at scale, which is what we're all about. Yeah, I mean, that, that of course comes with cost when you're when you're bringing all of that in i mean it, it obviously increases the cost but i guess long term and especially with the vision you guys have uh in terms of hitting all of these these areas then then you can see where it has the, the long-term benefit and and when i look at the vision of yours obviously neutron is is a big part of it uh which 
and I didn't realize this. You're talking human spaceflight capability mm. as well. So what, what what's yeah, I mean, if you're gonna, yeah, go ahead about neutron? Well, if you if you're going to build a big rocket, um, it would be rude not to make sure that you can take humans as well. I mean, that would all go all that work, and then I've been wrong so many times that um, I'm certainly not going to preclude ourselves from from human spaceflight um, and designing a vehicle that that is capable of doing it. Um, because to go back and you know recertify the tanks and make sure you have safety margins in the right places, that's a big job. So you know you know make the assumption from day one that um, that you, you may end up carrying astronauts. So um, design the vehicle to be able to do that. Um, and that's that's exactly what we're doing with Neutron. Are you thinking about point-to-point launch? It's starting to bubble up as a topic of interest here in the US. I'm just curious your perspective for that. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it's an interesting concept. I think the world has to be a pretty scary place before that's a, really a requirement. Um, so, you know, um, I think if we're, we're at a point where we require, you know, hypersonic point-to-point cargo transportation, then there's probably a few other things to worry about. Um, but ne- nevertheless, um, you know, I think it's a technology that's ultimately completely doable and, um, you know, Neutron could, could be, you know, lift many, many tons of, of, of point-to-point. That would be the ideal scenario for the vehicle, actually. Um, but, you know, it's like many things, especially we'll talk about space sustainability, you know, um, I think I think there's a lot of places that and a lot of technologies that could solve the problem, but it's just far better to not get there in the first place. Yeah, interesting. And so you you gave us the nice lead into space sustainability there. Um, you're working on a recovery phase, a reusable rocket. Uh, how are you integrating sustainability into your operations? And what do you think uh, space companies, launch companies in particular, should be doing to focus on that? So when, when we started designing Electron um, from day one, we, we, we was baked into a, the way we thought about it. Um, and, you know, a launch vehicle, you, you, you're down in the weeds of margins and everything, right? I mean, one and a half to two percent of the total rocket's mass is actually the payload that you lift. So generally, you know, it's, it's a very luxurious thing to sort of sit there and go, well, how do I make sure I don't leave any of this behind? Generally, it's the, the opposite of the problem. It's, it's like, how do I just get anything to orbit? Um, but for us, we, we consciously sat down and said, okay, what we've said here is we're going to launch really, really frequently. And we're going to put it over the, you know, over the course of a couple of decades, we're going to launch a lot of rockets. So if you look at the, the history of space flight and you look at the history of space junk, and you guys know, there's a tremendous amount of dead rockets in orbit, like spent stages and upper stages, dead motors, all sorts of stuff up there that, that are, are, are really, you know, generally high mass, um, also, you know, sometimes good ballistic coefficients, sometimes really poor ballistic coefficients. So meaning that they can, they can stay there for a very, very long time. And I don't know, it just, it just didn't kind of feel right to, to design a vehicle that didn't address that at all. So, um, you know, when we designed Electron, we had, we, we had this concept of the, the kick stage or the upper stage of the vehicle. So our second stage, which is, you know, the largest piece of the mass that would, is, is in orbit, typically only stays in orbit for about mm, four weeks or less because um, we put it into, a, into an elliptical parking orbit and, you know, the, the, the perigee or the low point of the orbit is, is 200 and something kilometres. So, um, you know, big ballistic coefficient um, and low altitude, so it deorbits really, really quickly. And then the kick stage, um, we, we go up, we deploy our customer's payload, and either one or two things happens. One is we'll turn it into a satellite ourselves 
um, or we'll do a deorbit burn on that and rate low, once again lower the perigee so that um, you know the, the the lifetimes of those stages are very short. And you know the last few launches, um, you know I think our our, um, our kick stage was down in a matter of months. So we're just leaving nothing behind except for the the customer satellite. And I have to be honest, I do worry a little bit in especially in the small launch industry because it's so much harder to do a small launch vehicle um, than a big one. And um, you know, it's just it just feels like a gold rush. It's just it's just a race to orbit. And you know, you ask any of these guys like, well, what are you doing with the upper stage? And you know, this kind of no answer, right? I mean, it's like, well, you know, we've we've got this great ESG program where we're you know giving kids in kindergarten milk, but um, actually from a from a from a space standpoint, like um, leaving leaving these giant upper stages in orbit that have large masses and things like that um, is not not so cool. What about the payloads, Peter? You know, what role do launch companies have in vetting customers and encouraging them to be responsible space actors? Yeah, I would say that, you know, we're all a little bit early on this. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say that the majority of the work here is, is done by, by governments. Um, and, and and regulation, and I think, you know, as a launch provider, there's, there's there's only so much you can you can control, and so much that you can get act, information you can get access to. Um, as a as a launch provider, we're a glorified freight company, so um, you know, is it it's like kind of like asking DHL to screen every payload or every parcel they put through to make sure that it's recyclable, um, and it just becomes a logistical nightmare. The the, the place to do that is actually through regulation. And you know our, our view, and we've always been very public about this, is that we think there needs to be more regulation, not not less in this space. And you know, as as the globe starts to proliferate in low Earth orbit, whether it be US and or China or Russia, whoever, um, there's still no kind of really cohesive framework there where we can all just have an adult conversation and make sure that 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 everything is everything is you know, going to be sustainable. Because the one thing is for sure is that as a human species. We're not just going to cancel the internet from space and cancel GPS and cancel all these things. These are all things that that provide meaningful improvements to life. Um, so we need we need these things, but we just have to do it in a way where you know people aren't calling each other at two o'clock in the morning across continents to worrying about you know bumping satellites together. There has to be a global a global regulation. And you know I went to the UN and and spoke there about this, and it was it was it was incredibly like it, it was it was both incredibly frustrating and, and also incredibly awe-inspiring. I mean, it was awe-inspiring in the fact that all these countries turn up to talk about it. It was depressing that they all had prepared statement from their government and and read out their little speech. And then at the end of it, I'm like, okay, let's go and have a sandwich and a couple of tea, cup of tea and talk about this and work it out. And it's just, no, that, that's that's all that happens is we have, we read, we read these prepared statements and, and we go off and talk through our, you know, talk talk through our various government agencies, and it's just if you could just take all those people and just put them in a room, lock the door, put some pizza and energy drink in there, and just say, right, sort this out. And the doors are open when it's all good. Um, wouldn't that be great for the human species? That would solve all the problems overnight. Charity, you're our you're our vice VP of policy. Can you take care of that? Uh, we'll we'll put the pizza on the on the global bill. It's okay. Yeah, I, I, I mean, 
that it would be definitely good to have those conversations along. Actually, Copius is going on right now, Peter, mm -hmm. uh, yep. uh, scientific and technical subcommittee. Um, and they're going to talk about space sustainability, but it's time to go from talk to action. So I'm looking forward to seeing plans out of that. Is that happening? I mean, how do, how do both of you feel? I mean, is it, mm -hmm. are you, are you confident that we're, that we're incrementally getting to a place where we're going to see some success on this, or is it going to continue to be talking in circles without, you know, without any kind of progress? Well, you can go first on that one, Jeremy. I'll take, I'll take a second answer on that one. International diplomacy is messy, there's sausage making, and it, it spirals. There's no direct route to a decision. I feel, and we've had this conversation, Chris, yeah, that but, but, it but, really but not takes national leadership, national leadership, and then allied support, and then you kind of build up and you bubble up to an international fora, and, and all these major stakeholders get together at that end point to decide what's going on. Um, some days I'm really optimistic about it because I, I see progress and I see industry, nothing nothing motivates industry more than the threat of regulation. Um, but also I'm some days I'm pessimistic where I'm like, nah, it's gonna take a big crash in orbit for us to do anything about this. So depends what day you get me on. Peter, what about you? Well, I just look back at human history and unfortunately as a species, we're not real good at thinking forward and solving problems before they happen. Um, you know, if, if you were, if you're an alien looking at back at us, you would go, well, they, they have this, this kind of flaw in their society where they wait until bad stuff happens and then they go and fix it. Um, so I, I, I guess I'd like to be optimistic about it, but I, I think it's, it's probably going to take some some either some near misses or some 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 things to go on and all but that that everybody kind of goes oh man that's not so good um for us for us to really change because you know there's there's a lot at stake there's a lot of a lot of you know politics and and um and you know commercial enterprise and all the rest of it all those things don't conspire together to make a snappy decision i think my idea is the best i think you just lock them in the room with some pizza i think that's that is until they, nobody's allowed out until it's sorted. There's some cultural issues with that, maybe. I don't know. Different different types of food. That would be. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. We, pizza's yeah, pretty we, universal. We pizza. Pizza's yeah. it's just what's on pizza. I mean, in, in Japan, it's, it's shrimp, and, <laughs> shrimp and mayonnaise on pizza. But I think that. And pineapple, of course. pineapple. Yeah, yeah. It depends on where you are. Um, but yep. solving the world, one world's problems, one pizza at a time. <laughs> like that someone should take that up as a motto God, and i and I, I i hope we're getting there and i i i mean we feel confident that we can try to make it happen we have a we have a big policy team uh, and and for us you know we're we always say we're more than just an engineering company like we're, we're really focused on, on trying to shape the policy as well uh, but you mentioned peter like the near misses I, I feel like near misses we've had a bunch of them we always have near misses and I mean, we've had people who come to us and say, oh, there's going to be a, a, a close approach, a conjunction in two days. And if, if there's an accident, are you guys ready to get a, go on camera and, and make a statement? And we'll say, yeah. And then after it's a near miss, we're like, oh, OK, no, we, we don't need you anymore. There wasn't an accident. So we're OK now. Um, so it's it's uh, it's too bad. But is, is a policy focus something that that you guys are are actively focused on as well? Like you have a policy team that's trying to address that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we do. But there's there's so many policy things to, to, to focus in on. And it's like, where, where can you have an impact? I mean, 
I look naively. I thought, oh, look, um, you know, Rocket Lab's going to lead the way with this, and we can, I can go up to Geneva, and and this this will be a piece of cake. I mean, what I learned is that is that you know, governments and politics is a very very non-linear game. Like engineering's great because you put in an input and you know exactly the output. There's a is, is a set of you know the law of physics that they have to obey, and you know you can push one poke one thing there and you know that at this side something else is going to come out. But with with kind of you know politics and we've had to do a lot of regulatory stuff in our past. Like we had just you know, bilateral treaties between the US and New Zealand to launch out of New Zealand, creation of New Zealand Space Agency, all the all the New Zealand uh, high altitude and space activities bill and all this sort of stuff. And the one thing I learned about you know working with all of these kind of folks is that it's incredibly nonlinear. The inputs don't match the outputs and um, you know it's 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 a very, very different game to play other than than an engineering game which is the rules of engagement are very well defined by physics it's definitely hard to predict the outcome isn't it yep policy um so the olympics are going on right now and (laughs) chris has heard this analogy from me before but i see policy and regulatory efforts as something in curling do you know what i'm talking about when i say curling okay Mm -hmm. good (laughs) canadian Yep. Yep. <laughs> so so you got the person throwing the rock down the ice and then you have those sweepers, right? And they are helping steer and spin and stop the the rock to get in the right place at the right time. That's what a policy team can do is just set the conditions for success, but can't necessarily promise that. So it's it's a difficult to slice. Love the Did analogy. I get that right? I love the analogy. And my, my, my kids have started watching curling and they're just like, how is this a sport? But it clearly is a sport in, in the Olympics and in policy. The, the, I guess the challenge there is you need someone with the courage to give the, you know, to give the curl a, a big old thump and, and, and with the intention of, of meeting its target. Yeah. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Yes. That's what I say all the time to <laughs> engineers. It's all good. Um, Peter, I'd like to kind of veer to diversity in the space industry and in the space community. And I'm talking about not just, you know, gender or background or ethnicity, but people around the world. Tell us about Rocket Lab and its ability to, well, hire folks from outside the U.S. in a rocket company, which is kind of a big deal. Um, do the ITAR restrictions in the U.S. Can you talk about how you're growing uh, the talent within Rocket Lab and bringing in diverse talent at that? Yeah, it sort of comes back to my statement. We've kind of had to be global from from day one and deal with with um, with all the boundaries that, that ITAR um, presents um, and opportunities it presents too, quite frankly, um, as, as, as a U.S. company. And um, you know, look, uh, we, we have an advantage in New Zealand where we can hire um, not just out of the US pool, we can hire out of, you know, the friendly kind of EU countries, um, which gives us, you know, as you point out, a much, much more diversified set of um, experiences and talent. We find that um, we hire a lot out of the space industry. Um, you know, if you walk around Rocket Lab, you'll find people from Formula One and from, you know, yacht racing and, and a whole, you know, pretty diverse kind of backgrounds. I think that's that's worked out really well for us because if you bring in a whole bunch of you know executives and engineers from the space industry, you just end up with you know the same thing over again. If you bring in a whole bunch of people from you know different backgrounds and different cultures and different countries, then you know every, sometimes it's just from purely not knowing any better. Like a lot of the kind of things are, are questioned. And if you look at Electron, I think that's a classic example, right? I mean, that that probably if it would have been an, an aluminum single engine gas generator, you know, 
kind of a vehicle um, with all of the follies that 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 goes with it. Um, and instead, you know, what, what you end up with was a lot of innovation in areas that that really enabled us to produce a vehicle that, you know, if you look at the size of that vehicle and how much payload it lifts, it's 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 pretty phenomenal. Um, and you know, the accuracy and the performance of that vehicle. I mean, generally we're measuring orbital insertion accuracy within hundreds of meters. So, um, you know, all of which for you guys in particular is important, right? Um, so a whole bunch of innovation that, that, that probably never would have, would have actually happened um, because of that, that level of diversity. And then of course, we've got operations in Canada and, um, uh, and so yeah, so there's, there's literally the, like a UN rocket company for sure. Yeah, and that, and that, that orbital insertion accuracy is, is fantastic. And, and as, as you alluded to there, that's why we're, we're flying with you guys on our, our next mission uh, in, in about a year. So we're excited about that, uh, our address J mission. So um, you've been, you said 15 years or so, right? Is that when you started the company 15 years ago? Yeah, I guess it is. Something like that, yep. yeah. And yep. so for the last six months of those, you've been a public company. Mm. How has that been? It's actually been really good. I mean, to be honest with you, we're always intending to be a public company. Um, we we ended up kind of accelerating that slightly by about six months with with the the, the whole kind of rise of the SPACs. Um, so, but we, we're already we're already kind of on that trajectory. So the way that we we ran the company with respect to systems and uh, and and um, you know all our you know, finance readiness and things like that were were well down the path of of being ready and like i say we're pretty much operating as a public company and you know the reason the reason to go public for me was kind of there's kind of three fundamental reasons um one is is kind of to, to a kind of make a lot of company sense one is probably more personal but you know uh good, good access to, to the to the capital markets is, is really important um and as you as you think about the long-term future of the company and bringing a, a high quality space asset to the markets i think was was important uh, it also gave us the ability to do the acquisitions that we we want to do because as a private company acquisitions are actually pretty hard um, because you know you you still don't have a liquid currency and it's it's all on the promise so um, you know using using equity is is much more difficult especially when you're competing with private companies for deals that becomes really really challenging and then kind of the third and final reason is that I'm trying to build um, you know a multi generational space company. And one of the challenges um, I think within this industry is, is you know, there's a few examples where, um, uh, you know, the, the the company without the individual behind the company is essentially dead. And I didn't want to, to, to you know, to build a company that, you know, ultimately, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to die at some point, right? Um, so, uh, you know, it sounds a bit morbid, but that's just that's just the fact. And I, when 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 that occurs, or I get to old and crusty and, and, and can't make good decisions and someone moves me on, um, then the company, the company's ethos, what the company stands for and the company continues into the future doing and leaving an impact. Um, it's kind of, uh, it, it feels like it's a lasting thing. Whereas if I'm a private company and um, it's, just, it's just all wrapped around me, then, um, you know, at that point, it's, it's just like a blink, it's like a blink of a star in the night sky, right? Rather than something that burns on and on and on. So I know that's kind of a, a bit of a wishy-washy reason to, to, to make a public company, but I actually think that the work that Rocket Lab can do is going to well outlive, live time, outlive my lifetime. So, um, and what we've set up here and the way that the ethos and the culture of the company is will continue long without me. 
So, um, so if you if you if you're serious about you know really building this generational company, then um, then you really need to you know set it up to to be successful for the future. I like that answer, and it kind of gets to our next question, Chris, on you know companies that partner with other companies to do great things and. We have a set of quick questions for you, Peter. They're meant to be fun. Uh, okay. So no, no studying involved oh, here. here we go. <laughs> uh, but we are, we are at the theme of the podcast this year is about partnerships. So we're wondering what you think in fiction or nonfiction mm-hmm. has been a really good example of a space partnership. You know, it could be historical as well. Is it Spock and Kirk? Mm. Uh, is it Apollo Soyuz? You know, anything come to mind for this question? I, I do actually. I, th- I think I think it is. It's it's not just one mission. I think it is. Um, you, you kind of Apollo Soyuz, R- Russia, US. Because I, I'm not I'm not sure that everybody fully appreciates how much the space program de-escalated uh, and um, provided a stable um, revenue base for, um, for for the for the Russian government over some years that uh, could have been pretty wobbly. So I think, you know, I think space played a huge huge role in in country to country, you know, um, relationships there and, and global stability. How about fiction? <laughs> Any fictional characters um, that see, come to I mind? Don't, I, I don't read much much fiction. I. I I, I struggle with that as a concept in my mind because I'm always kind of thinking about how I can use that in everyday life. And when 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 I kind of realize I get in like a chapter and it's realize, hang on a minute, this isn't actually true, then it's kind of a letdown. So I really, really struggle um, struggle with fiction. I do enjoy a good, you know, Star Wars movie though. So ah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Yeah, that, that idea of um uh, diplomacy and, and space, you know, bringing countries together and and uh, let's hope that continues i think it really has and apollo soyuz was a great example in iss well i think i think this is this is where sustainability is going to be the next big conjoiner because um because countries are countries that are currently kind of you know adverse adversaries in space adversaries in space are are gonna have to come together because each of their junk's going to start bumping into each other, and and it's 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 going to be a forced relationship at some point, whether they like it or not. Yeah, we're all impacted by it, so let's 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 mm. work together on this. Now, <laughs> easier said than done, of course. Uh, a, a couple other quick questions for you, okay? Uh, rapid fire ones. You ready? Sorry, these are meant to be rapid fire. No, that's all right. That last one was that last one was good, more expansive. We'll try to do a few more rapid fire ones. Um, when is the next human going to land on the moon? Oh well, not twenty twenty four. I'm I'm gonna say I think thirty. I think that's a good. Yep, I think that's a good round number. So you're going, yeah, a little farther than what the what the uh, what the plan is. Is it going to be a, a private or a public mission? I I actually I actually hope it's private. I'm I'm I think if it's private, then um, you know there's a whole lot of goodness happened at that point. So let's let's all hope that it's private. Are you signing up for that mission? No. <laughs> How about a suborbital flight? Oh, yeah, it's one of those things that you know, if you know too much about the technology and the safety factors and all of those things, it's, it's not going to make for an enjoyable ride. I, I have immense respect for 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 an astronaut um, who who are generally very very well uh, educated and skilled in the art, and 
and to put a leg either side of that spacesuit is pretty amazing. Uh, launch vehicles. This is kind of a tough one. So if, if you don't want to answer, but um, how many launch vehicle companies is the space economy going to be able to support? Well, certainly not as many as has been funded. Um, you know, if, if you look at everybody's and this, this is, this is, I think this is not very contentious. I mean, if you look at everybody's business plan, they've all got the same customer. You can't fly the same constellation five times over. Um, so, you know, at some point there will be a widowing of, of, of the launch industry and of the launch market. Um, and, um, I think that's, that's a well accepted fact. Now there's still, the numbers are still climbing and last year, 146 orbital launches in 2021. How's, how's that number going to climb? 2025. What do you think? How many, how many launches? I, th I think 2025 will be an interesting year, actually, because I think 25, you've hit the nail on the head, is when a number of these mega constellations will be really in full swing of, um, of, of you know, proliferation of their platforms. You know, hence the reason why we're trying to bring Neutron on in 24 and, and 25, because I think that will be, that will be really a, a, a good time. Um, and I think there'll be a, a huge, you know, launch requirement round about then. So, um, so yep, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. That's, that's, that's a good launch year for sure. So we didn't even talk about Venus. Mm. And I know Rocket Lab is planning a mission to Venus. So I, I, this is a quick fire. Unfortunately, we didn't get to that question, but... You shouldn't shouldn't is, be asking Venus questions if you expect it to be quick fire. <laughs> what is after Venus is my question. What is the next oh. planetary system you guys are going to check out? Oh, God. I mean, Venus is hard enough. I mean, let's just get Venus done before we, before we move on. I mean, the whole point of Venus, obviously, is to search for life. And... Um, I don't think that's a one and done. I think I think we'll we'll have a crack at it, and we we sincerely hope that what we what we discover there or not um, is is fuel for 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 more more you know countries, and we really hope hope private companies. I mean, um, this will be this would be the first you know time a private company's ever ventured to another planet, and you know especially on a on a deeply scientific mission like this. Um, so I, I think the more the more um, private, well, it's public company now, I should say, but but non-government um, kind of entities um, should 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 go and do these things. So to, maybe tell us a quick little bit about it. Then I know we're we're closing out and uh, it was taking your time here, but about the Venus one, maybe just a, a, a quick snapshot of what you're trying to do there. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the, the earliest memory I have of a child is standing outside in a dark southern sky with my father, and he pointed out all the stars in the sky. And mentioned that all those stars are suns, or majority of them. They have planets around them, and there could be somebody looking back at you. And I think the biggest, the biggest answer or biggest question that we can try and answer as a species, it just besides all the kind of the, the the daily dreg stuff, is you know, are we alone in the universe or not? And statistically speaking, um, you would say, well, it's highly unlikely that we are alone. But if you want to be scientific about it, we have no evidence to prove the contrary. So um, we started looking around the solar system and, uh, you know, Venus is, is one area in, in a sweet zone in the clouds of Venus. Um, the, the environment's temperate enough uh, for potential life. And then Sarah Sager and her team uh, found, you know, origins and trace, traces of phosphine, which is, which is, you know, only produced by, by kind of signs of life. So all of these things kind of point to, um, you know, to, to the potentially being life there. And um, I have a rocket have a spacecraft you know the lunar photon is capable of going to the moon it's also capable of going to venus all is we really need is a probe to you know to enter the surface into into the atmosphere of venus and take some measurements and send them back to earth 
but no, but 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 no commercial value. Obviously, I mean, there's not going to be a commercial impetus to do that. Um, yes and no. So I think I think if you can prove as a private company um, or a public company that you can, or as a company, let's say that that you can go to another planet and create meaningful scientific value. I mean, if you if you if you talk to planetary scientists, they mainly get like between one and two significant missions in their entire professional career. Um, and we, the way we do planetary science is not the way we do science on the planet, right? We don't, we don't save up for 10 years, spend a billion dollars and do one experiment. Like we sit in the lab and we iterate and we learn and we try different things. And um, that, that's what we think is of huge, huge value um, to the scientific community is let, let's go to these planets often. Let's do little experiments, but let's go there often and iterate on the things we learn rather than, you know, doing one big mission every decade that has many bees in front of it let's 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 see if we can you know do those still but let's see if we can also um, iterate and 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 you know go there with some very very poignant questions you want to answer and and, and see see if we can we can increment that forward cool i think that's a good place to end off this conversation what a what looking a, to the future very much so charity what a cool conversation thanks so much peter for joining us oh my pleasure <laughs>